Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. David French of National Review is in for the vacationing Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Sadly, we have no good martinis today. We have bad, <laughs> bad and crazy. It was nice while it lasted. We had two yesterday, David, so I guess we uh, used up our quota for our two days together this week on Monday. But let's get to our first one, and I know it's an issue that's near and dear to to your heart. Kyle Kashuv is a well-known young conservative figure. He was a student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. He was a student at the horrific shooting there on Valentine's Day of 2018. And while several of those students became very strong gun control advocates and and got a lot of media attention, he became a very well-known Second Amendment advocate. He's also a very good student who ultimately got accepted by Harvard. However, he's not going to Harvard. Yesterday, Kyle issued a Twitter thread explaining what had happened. We'll just read through it quickly here. It's several posts. Number one, Harvard rescinded my acceptance. Three months after being admitted to Harvard class of 2023, Harvard has decided to rescind my admission over texts and comments made nearly two years ago, months prior to the shooting. I have some thoughts, and here's what happened. A few weeks ago, I was made aware of egregious and callous comments that classmates and I made privately years ago when I was 16 years old, months before the shooting, in an attempt to be as extreme and shocking as possible. I immediately apologized. After I issued this apology, speculative articles were written. My peers used the opportunity to attack me, and my life was once again reduced to a headline. It sent me into one of the darkest spirals of my life. After the story broke, former peers and political opponents began contacting Harvard, urging them to rescind me. Harvard then sent this letter stating that Harvard reserves the right to withdraw an offer of admission and requested a written explanation within 72 hours. I responded to the letter with a full explanation, apology, and requested documents. I also sent an email to the Office of Diversity and Inclusion to seek guidance on how to right this wrong and work with them once I was on campus. Harvard decided to rescind my admission with the following letter, which he then posts there. Somewhat ironically, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion sent me this response regarding my apology, which didn't seem like they were going to rescind it. They initially said, thank you for your email. We appreciate your thoughtful reflections and look forward to connecting with you upon your matriculation in the fall of 2020. After receiving Harvard's letter revoking my acceptance, I responded by asking for the opportunity to have an in-person meeting to make my case face-to-face and work towards any possible path of reconciliation. Harvard responded by declining my meeting request. Harvard deciding that someone can't grow, especially after a life-altering event like the shooting, is deeply concerning. If any institution should understand growth, it's Harvard, which is looked to as the pinnacle of higher education despite its checkered past. Throughout its history, Harvard's faculty has included slave owners, segregationists, bigots, and anti-Semites. If Harvard is suggesting that growth isn't possible and that our past defines our future, then Harvard is an inherently racist institution. But I don't believe that. I believe that institutions and people can grow. I've said that repeatedly. He goes on a little bit more. But, David, you have talked and worked on issues of students and faculty and free speech on campus. The assumption here on the right is that if Kyle Kashuv had been a liberal and had said these things a number of years ago, he'd be fine at Harvard. Uh, But because he's a Second Amendment advocate, he's not. It's hard to know for sure. But what's your take on all this? Yeah, this is yet another example about how our culture is losing any sense of grace. Let's just state clearly, unequivocally, the things that he said, he used racial slurs and private group chats when he was 16 years old, were bad. They were vile. 
but he not only has he apologized for them because you know let's be honest everybody apologizes when they're caught right but not only has he apologized for him but he has an actual public record of how he handles pressure ever since the awful parkland shooting how he handles trauma how he handles himself in public life that record includes denouncing racism and alt-right figures who lurk on the edges of the american right these days so he actually has a very considerable record as a public figure that is nothing like the person that's expressed in those documents from when he was 16 years old and look can we just be honest about something here people grow up a lot between ages 16 and 18 they also grow up a lot especially when they've been exposed to terrible and traumatic events you know my oldest daughter's 20 my son is 18 i've been around teenagers for most of the last decade and there's a couple of things that you know immediately when you're around teenagers a lot one there's hardly a cohort of americans who are more in need of grace and tolerance and forgiveness <laughs> than teenagers and two the amount of growth that takes place in a really short amount of time in your teen years especially if you're on a positive trajectory is pretty remarkable let's just say that the growth between 16 and 18 is a lot different from the growth between 26 and 28 or 46 and 48 or 76 and 78 this is a very different time of life and if we cannot have grace for bad acts when someone is 16 then millions upon millions and millions of people are now facing permanent impairment to their reputation and permanent punishment for things that they did that were not criminal when they're in these teenage years and even in criminal circumstances we have often much more grace Harvard has admitted people with criminal records in previous circumstances and so this idea that says what you do when you're 16 especially when it is contradicted by a later record in life apologize for unreservedly is going to be the instrument of your punishment i think it's graceless it's intolerant and it's just a symbol of what we're dealing with now in our culture what happens if a graceless society persists <laughs> well well i think you're you're seeing it i think what you see is just politics gets more miserable the culture war gets more miserable acrimony builds fury builds and you begin to see politics not as an instrument for advancing the public good but rather as an instrument for vendettas and score settling and that's essentially in many ways what our political battles have become and finally what do we do to change it <laughs> well you know one thing is you have to understand that a lot of the people who are engaging in the vendettas who are engaging in the score settling are not as mainstream as you think so for example some of the people who are pushing Kyle's punishment here were actually not even far left figures but far right figures like Mike Cernovich and Laura Loomer who had scores to settle not with Kyle but with Kyle's allies in the conservative movement in fact when Kyle's comments first came to light Cernovich tweeted at me and Ben Shapiro of all people as if we had anything to do with any of this so this is something that is score settling here from a fringe but the thing about this fringe especially the left fringe in higher education is that it has more power than its numbers would suggest in part because the fringes of american political society have 
absolutely zero hesitation to use whatever platform that they have to inflict pain on people. For the fringes of American politics and discourse, cruelty is the point of their engagement. Vast majority of Americans don't like to be at the receiving end of that. And so they'll often yield to the worst voices just out of a pain avoidance strategy, just because they don't want to deal with it. They want to go on with their lives. And so the worst and bullying voices tend to win again and again, which communicates that they have outsized influence, but also, I think, gives a false perception of strength in general. And so I think what we need to have is more people who are decent and they're out there begin to show some resistance and some courage in the face of those who would bully and try to inflict pain and cruelty. Yeah, David, one of the things that you have repeatedly said, and unfortunately 2016 proved it to you, is that Twitter is not reality. You get a lot of venom, uh, but ultimately that's not a full accurate representation of what our society is. Our society might be trending in that direction, sadly, but uh, you're getting the worst and the worst of the people who don't know you and have no compunction whatsoever about just unloading with a whole bunch of vitriol whenever they feel like it. Well, that's exactly right. And unless you become a veteran of all of that vitriol, which, you know, unfortunately some of us have become, it is a shocking event in your life to become an object of such hate. Most people in their normal daily lives do not encounter, let's just be honest, they don't encounter all that much just upfront personal hate. But what Twitter is very good at doing is communicating an awful lot of that. And it's a very shocking and disrupting event in a person's life. I mean, I've had people send me private messages saying that they were rattled just by the reaction of defending me in the replies to my own posts. <laughs> the the vitriol that came on just normal, everyday, average Americans who thought I raised a good point. And then the attacks that came upon them, you know, rattled them and shook them and deterred them from future engagement. And that's what it's become. In many ways, I feel like it's just getting worse. Second bad martini. This is from CNN with a lot of help from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Medicare for all is in the spotlight in the 2020 presidential campaign, but many Americans don't understand what it is. A new Kaiser Family Foundation poll released Tuesday found that majorities of those polled have mistaken views about the government-run program backed by Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent who is a leading candidate for the Democratic nomination. And there's a lot more Democrats who are in favor of this as well. Nearly 7 in 10 Americans think they would continue to pay deductibles and co-pays under Medicare for All, Kaiser found, when in fact they would not. And some 54 percent wrongly believe that individuals and employers would continue to pay premiums. Almost the same share think those who currently get health insurance through their jobs or buy it on their own would be able to keep their plans, when in fact the current proposals would essentially do away with private insurance altogether. But there is one aspect of Medicare for All that the vast majority of those polled understand very well. Some 78% say that taxes would increase for most people under such a plan, which is in fact likely to happen. So, David, this is a good reminder for those of us that follow this on a day-to-day basis that most people don't follow this stuff on a day-to-day basis because there's a lot of people out there who just think this is going to be a, a public option or some other thing. And if they like their plan, they can keep it. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a fascinating aspect of the 2020 race because you know Medicare for all has just become a shorthand for what Democrats want to do with health care. And it has not firmed up in people's minds as a precise plan with precise parameters and a precise meaning. 
And some Democrats are actually using that to their advantage. They're using the words Medicare for all so that the left edge of the Democratic Party, you know, is off their backs. But at the same time, they've got a little wiggle room and flexibility in the way that they describe it. So for some of the candidates, Medicare for all isn't actually Bernie Sanders' Medicare for all sweeping away all private health care plans and replacing it with the largest government bureaucracy in the whole of human history. But instead, it is Medicare for all who want Medicare. So it would be, say, a public option. There's a lot of wiggle room out there. There's a lot of, as we saw, you know, a lot of imprecision, a lot of public ignorance. And what we're going to end up seeing, unless Bernie Sanders gets this nomination, which he may well, although he seems to be fading, I think you're going to see a lot of Democrats moving to the center on the Medicare for all debate, you know, as 2019 rolls into 2020. And I'm going to bet, I could be totally wrong here, I'm going to bet that the Democratic nominee, if it's not Bernie Sanders, is going to ultimately settle for public option as their version of Medicare for all. That's my suspicion, because I feel like the challenge of beating Donald Trump will outweigh the imperative of completely socialized medicine for the ultimate Democratic nominee, unless that Democratic nominee is Bernie Sanders, because Bernie, he does not compromise for anybody. Yeah, and uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, we almost made this the the good martini, but uh, Republicans, or at least a couple Republicans out there, understand that you can't just say, look at those people, they're a bunch of socialists. You have to actually spend the time and create the message and get the message out, what that actually means. Because if you just listen to the Democrats and a lot of their friends in the media, you know, Medicare for all just means more access, cheaper prices. Or, uh, you know, the the Green New Deal. Yeah, sure, it could cost $93 trillion, but we're going to save the planet somehow. So on and on it goes. And so if you just mock them, which if we go back to Twitter, is kind of what happens in a lot of the political debates now, instead of actually digging in and explaining why capitalism and the free market and people having their own choices instead of the government making their choices for them, making the assumption that people already know that is a good way to lose an election. Look, the bottom line is nobody knows what words mean (laughs) because we're talking about socialism, which traditionally would mean the state controls the means of production. Okay, what they're really talking about time and time again is something more like, say, Denmark, which isn't socialism. It's still a market economy. It's just one with a much larger government role and government safety net, a much larger government. And then we have these people who are trying to insult the Republican establishment on the right, calling all kinds of Republicans libertarians, as if the only option is between sort of Donald Trump's populism is this free trade a completely unregulated economy that, quote unquote, libertarians want when they're using that word to describe people who say, you know, on balance, free trade is better than a tariff regime. But far from saying we need a completely unregulated economy with no social safety net. So people are throwing these words around, redefining them, knowing that people don't actually know what they mean. They're words that have had a traditional historical meaning, but now they're sort of political slogans that are used as shorthands often to insult opponents and often to allow people to sometimes feel a little bit more fashionable and radical than they really are. Wow. 
Well, I hope you're right that the eventual Democratic nominee doesn't want to go full-blown Medicare for all. I'm sure they'll be going in a direction that you and I would not uh, appreciate from a free market standpoint. But the more people understand what's really at stake with this and the Green New Deal and so many other things that we've discussed uh, over time, that it's important that everybody's got the full picture. Can I let your listeners in on a secret? What's that? About the 2020 election. Unless the Republicans lose the Senate, which is unlikely, or unless the Republicans win back the House and gain a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, which is highly unlikely, all of these really big legislative proposals that you're going to hear talked about and all of the things that say Medicare for all is at stake or free college is at stake or you name it, none of it's at stake. Because there's no way, if the Republicans maintain control of the Senate, that cocaine Mitch is going to let (laughs) Medicare for all become the law of the land. And so we're going to have a superheated political debate about legislative proposals that have no hope of going anywhere unless there's a wave election. And in wave elections, the wave tends to get what the wave wants, which is democracy. But in the absence of a wave election, we're going to hear an awful lot of overheated rhetoric about legislative proposals that will go exactly nowhere. Well, that's actually kind of reassuring, David. That's that's, that's an actually yes. a, a good point. All the Sturm and Drang will uh, pretty much fall on deaf ears if Mitch McConnell's still running the show in the U.S. <laughs> yes. Senate. Well, we've talked a lot about Twitter today. We've talked about how uh, folks on Twitter and other social media have tried to destroy Kyle Kashev's life. We've talked about how political debate on Twitter in particular is about as toxic as it gets. So a lot of people are wondering... Is it even worth it? And other people are wondering, how could this site possibly get any worse? Well, we found out on Sunday. Hey, Twitter world, this is yours truly. Now, coming soon to Twitter, you'll get to read all my thoughts and opinions on just about everything. Now, there's a lot of fake OJ accounts out there. So this one, at the real OJ32, is the only official one. So this should be a lot of fun. I got a little getting even to do. So God bless. Take care. Oh, you don't want to be in the same zip code Uh, when OJ's got some getting even to do. David, this is what we've all been waiting for, right? I think you just said it perfectly. (laughs) Just when you thought Twitter couldn't get worse, look at what happens. (laughs) What do you make of a guy like OJ who's, you know, until about 25 years ago, was about as uh, famous and beloved of a celebrity as we could have had in this country due to his excellence on the field. And he was uh, a prominent broadcaster. And then over the past two and a half decades, obviously, he's uh, accused of double murder, somehow gets off, gets held responsible for the deaths in a civil lawsuit, then goes to prison for kidnapping and robbery. And now he's out again and is, for some reason, bound and determined to be in the public eye again. Yeah, I mean, the thing about the O.J. story is it's tragic on multiple levels. I mean, the first and most important reason it's tragic is the man killed two people. And got away with it, at least from uh, escaped criminal punishment for it. He received, you know, civil liability for it, but he ended two lives. So that was tragedy number one. Tragedy number two is that in the process of prosecuting OJ, it ripped open a lot of the racial wounds in the United States of America and exposed just how raw a lot of those wounds still were at the time and still are so that was tragedy number two and then you know what's so offensive about all of it is that he he kind of walks around as if he's the like the cat who swallowed the canary like that there is not this sense of repentance and deep remorse and reform instead he wrote a book essentially 
confessing to the crime uh, without actually confessing to the crime. As you can see from that, that little quick clip, he's not a man who is, shall we say, paid his debt to society and in deep remorse and repentance about committing heinous crimes. He seems to be still a man with an angle, still a guy trying to get ahead. And the Washington Post, though, would point out that America became racist because they only like black athletes until they get in trouble. Basically, they're calling Americans racist for not liking O.J. anymore once he got arrested for double homicide. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's something that is amazing to me that, look, there are racial problems in the United States of America. There are there are complicated relationships in some cases and complicated there are complications in the way America views black athletes sometimes. That's right. O.J. is the worst poster child possible <laughs> for saying that he made America uncomfortable with black athletes. No, America was uncomfortable with a double murderer. Um, the trial indicated that America, not so much that America was uncomfortable with black athletes, but it indicated the extent to which the LAPD had squandered its goodwill with the black citizens of L.A., which was a a different issue entirely from discomfort with one single double murderer. As I said, there were racial issues that were opened up in the course of the trial. But to say that um, O.J. Simpson as uh, was, you know, that he's some sort of stand in for how athlete black athletes make white Americans uncomfortable. Pick another guy, please. <laughs> David, always great to have you with us. Thanks for being here the past couple of days. And I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. David French of National Review in for Jim Garrity today. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us and tune in again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.